podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome in on a Tuesday, two-footed podcast brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com. The first weekend of Premier League games is over. 16 teams have played, eight games. Some good, some bad. Some teams looked really impressive and some showed they still have a lot of work to do. Last night, we saw two teams with some work still to do as Sheffield United took on Wolves, Wolves with the 2-0 win. But I have to say, after the first 10 minutes of the game, I thought it was a very, very even contest. I thought Wolves looked more threatening. Their play had more purpose to it. They looked like they had a bit more creativity and a bit more of a cutting edge. Whereas Sheffield United, it was a little bit of huffing and puffing and trying to blow the house down rather than you know maybe finding a way in through the window. Um... It's clear that Sheffield United need to find a goal scorer. There's, there's absolutely no question that they need to find a goal scorer. Lee Smith is a good player, but he's more of a second striker than an out-and-out number nine. Ollie McBurney is an old-fashioned big man in a little enlarged combination up front. But he's not a big goal scorer. And when you play the two of them, even though their skill sets do link quite well, there's just not enough goals. Both of them need to play alongside a pure number nine and they've been quite open about that it does look like Rian Brewster is their number one target and rumours are that they are in talks with Liverpool over a permanent deal for about 25 million pounds that will include a buyback for Liverpool will safeguard their interests in Rian Brewster will get Sheffield United the number nine they're looking for and will get Rian Brewster the game time and minutes that he needs at this point in his career. I think that's a deal that is a winner for all three parties involved. I'd love to see how Brewster develops under Chris Wilder. I think Chris Wilder is one of the one of the very best managers in the league. Really innovative, really good at player development. I don't know that that's enough. I still think they need one in midfield. I've said all along, I think someone like Baptiste Santa Maria coming in. I thought Ollie Norwood was poor last night. I thought he was maybe Sheffield United's worst player. He just looked like he was laboring a little bit. Now, Sander Berger would normally have started that game. He's not fully fit, so he came on for Norwood. Normally, he would start in place of John Lundstrom. And you'd imagine that John Fleck is going to remain a starter. He's the one of the midfield that does have a little bit of creativity. But I wonder if they could get someone like Santa Maria who can dictate a bit of tempo, has a good passing range, will open the field up and find those wing backs. That might be the area that they can upgrade after Brewster. Whether they have the money or not, I don't know. Um the only other area in the team that I think they need to upgrade is on, is on Chris Basham, and that's more to do with his age than anything else. I just think we've seen a bit of slippage in him over the last 12 months. I thought last year, 
there was a little bit of a decline in his game from when he wa- where he was in the championship. Now, some of that is the change in level as well. But they do have Ethan Ampadu in on loan from Chelsea. He could fit in for Basham perfectly. That wouldn't be something they'd need to concern themselves with. But if they could add that just one good player in midfield and get Rian Brewster, I really do think Sheffield United would be a different team. I think they'd be more purposeful. I think they'd have more of a cutting edge. I think they'd be more dangerous. We know that Jaden Bogle will eventually come in at right wing back. That's the upgrade there. Um, it remains to be seen whether Max Lowe can challenge Enda Stevens uh, to take the left wing back role. I have my doubts, but they'll certainly believe that he can. For Wolves, then, I thought I thought Raúl Jiménez his first probably thirty five minutes was everything you'd ask from a number nine. I, I just thought he was brilliant. His hold-up play, his link-up play, the runs he made in the channel. He was dropping off to receive the ball, turning, beating a man, getting things moving for them. His goal was was brilliantly taken. Everything about his performance in that first probably 35 minutes was top drawer. I thought the other two boys that played up front with him, Pudence and Neto, both showed quite a lot. Neto's a big, big talent. He's 20, 21. He's a big, big talent. Pudence is a little bit older. But you can see why they like him. He's tricky. He's got good movement. He's a clever dribbler. Got you know useful with both feet. I think he becomes more of a squad player across the course of the season. I'd imagine Diego uh, Diogo Jota comes back into that team um, to just to give him that pace, that bit more of an outlet. Adama played as a wing back, and personally, I didn't. I didn't like it. He's just over. Just after getting over COVID as well, uh, so. I don't know if he should even have been playing, but I, I wasn't too impressed by what I saw from Adama. I don't like him in that role. I think you're asking him to do far too much. Every time he gets the ball, he's immediately got to carry it 50, 60 yards, especially when Ruben Neves is not on the team and you don't have that that long-range passing that he brings. Um, I still think both teams here have work to do. It's a great start for Wolves. I've got them slated to finish seventh this year. I think I'm quite comfortable with that. Nice to get three points on the board early. For for Sheffield United, they've got work to do. But they can be quite happy with what they saw after the opening 10 minutes. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for the defence to get used to playing with Aaron Ramsdale. If you look at Aaron Ramsdale's average position last season and where he stood in relation to his penalty area and his defence, he played very deep, basically on the edge of a six-yard box. Dean Henderson played that bit higher. It allowed them to play that bit higher. He's a different type of goalkeeper. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to get used to him. I thought he made one great save. I thought as the game went on, you could see him becoming more vocal, becoming a bit more proactive in terms of his movement, in terms of making himself available for the ball if, if the defenders needed the outpass. So I think they can be comfortable with their goalkeeping situation. It would obviously have been nice to keep Dean Henderson, but I, I do think they've got a good goalkeeper here in Ramsdale. I just think it's going to take a little bit of time. He had a terrible season with Bournemouth last year. Not, not his fault. Bournemouth's defence was about as bad as you're ever really going to see. Given the amount of money they've spent, 
to produce that was atrocious. And I think that's going to have a knock-on effect on him for a couple of weeks until he gets used to playing with better defenders. I mean, O'Connell's very good. Egan's very good. Basham is decent. He's the one-week link, but he is decent. But I, I think Sheffield United should be confident. They, they're not going to be in any relegation trouble. Second season syndrome is real. This game is not an indication of that, though. This game is just a team that makes a slow start and then lacks that cutting edge to get back into it. But if you look by the numbers, I mean, it's not like they, they had a bad game. They had 56% possession, nine shots, two on target, um, you know, 12 corners. They were the more attacking team. But that, that, that start just killed them. The start was just so poor for them that they couldn't find a way back in. After that, then, we had Brighton against Chelsea, and I had predicted uh, a 2-0 Chelsea win. I thought they'd just have a little bit too much quality. As it turned out, they did win by two goals. They won 3-1, but I, I felt they f- were quite flat, uh, very underwhelming. I thought Brighton were the better team, if I'm being honest. I thought Brighton were the better team across the, the 90 minutes. I thought a draw would probably have represented a fair result. But I, I, if you ask me to pick somebody just based on if you watch the game, take the goals out and just watch the game, I would say that Brighton were the better team. Um, Chelsea had two debutants. Kai Havertz and Timo Werner. I thought Werner was impressive. His work rate, the clever movement, he looked a threat. From minute one, he looked a threat. He looked like somebody with a very singular focus, and that was to get goals. He wasn't helped by the system. I don't know what Frank was thinking with the system. He played a box midfield. And Ruben Loftus-Cheek basically is a second striker. No width. Now, whether that was to allow Reese James and Marcus Alonso to get forward, I don't know. And if he's planning this as his primary shape for the season ahead, I think, I think Chelsea are going to be very easy to play against. Um, you'd imagine that Kovacic would come back into the team for, for Jorginho. Jorginho scored a penalty last night, was largely a passenger aside from that. Um, if Zayic comes in where Havertz played yesterday and then Havertz moves into that Loftus-Cheek role, that is, you know, the basis of something. It means no Christian Pulisic in the team, though. It would be Mason Mount as the fourth attacker. But there's no natural width. There's no natural holding midfielder. I thought their centre-back pairing looked quite strong last night. I thought I thought Christensen had a good game. Um, I thought Zuma was decent. The goal was... Well, we'll get to that. It was a bit fluky, but I, I thought... I thought they looked flat. Havertz didn't play well. There's just no way around that. He just didn't play well. It was a poor start for him. But he's going to get much better. He just looked a little bit off the pace. He looked like he hadn't, you know, really trained with his teammates a whole bunch, which he hasn't. He will get much better. He's going to be used a lot better as well. That The setup didn't suit him yesterday either. And I thought Frank was very late to make his substitutions. Now, 
for Brighton, I thought Ben White looked very good in his first game in the Premier League. I thought the back three largely functioned quite well. Webster's not ideal on the left side because he's not left-footed, but he made it work. Lamptey was, Lamptey was excellent. Um, I thought he looked a threat every time he got the ball and was, was running at Chelsea fullback. Marcus Alonso was dancing around him or just bursting by him with pace, getting the ball across. I think they need a penalty box presence. I've said that before. Veghurst would be the one I'd go for. Someone that the likes of Mopé and Trossard and, and those other nippy fours that they have can play off. Someone that can really occupy central defenders. Um, they got unlucky when Adam Lallana was forced off with the injury. He'd started the game quite brightly. He was drifting in and out as he as he does. But it's Adam Lallana. He's going to get injured. You knew this when you signed him. Um, I thought Basuma and Alzate, I thought that pairing looked quite good. Now, I'd still prefer to see Basuma and Davy Proper. I still think you need someone who'll just get the ball moving for you. Proper was obviously out for this game, so I'd imagine he will come back in. Sully March had a good game at left wing back. Um, he wouldn't be my pick to play there every game, but he did, he, he did stand in and do quite well. I think Brighton showed a lot of people a lot of mainstream journalists who have predicted them to go down, just how foolish they look. And I saw quite a few of them scrambling last night to um, to address their own foolishness. Brighton are going to be are going to be good this season. They still need that left wing back. They still need the the guy up front, but they have the money, and they're in the market now. They're also apparently looking at a goalkeeper. Was talked that Emmy Martinez was one that they were looking at, so that's a bit of a surprise to me because I thought Matt Ryan had a good season last year and the year before. Maybe he's not ideal for the Premier League given that his you know short stature, but he is a good goalkeeper. Um, I, I wouldn't be spending the money there when you have bigger needs. But Brighton have a lot to be confident from. You look at the goals last night. The first one's a, a, a penalty. After a sloppy bit of play in midfield, Brighton give the ball away cheaply. Chelsea burst onto it. Werner goes through, gets taken down. It's a clear penalty, no arguments. And it's a very good penalty from Jorginho. He's, the one thing he does brilliantly is take a penalty. Um, but Brighton got back into it. Trossard scores a really good goal. I've seen a lot of criticism of Kepa after this. I put none. I put no blame for this goal on Kepa. I thought it was a really well-struck shot that is spinning away from him. You watch it bounce, and it's still spinning wide. So I think it's a, I think it's a good goal. I wouldn't put any blame on the goalkeeper. Chelsea go 2-1 up when Rhys James scores an absolute worldie. Now, Rhys James and Terry Glampty are going to be linked for the remainder of their careers because Lamptey left Chelsea because he didn't see a path into the first team for himself. And Chelsea were okay to let him go, because the reason there was no path was Rhys James. And there will be a debate for years to come over who's the better fullback. I think they're very close. I think England have an embarrassment of riches at right back now. When you look at Trent Alexander-Arnold, these two, Max Ahrens, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, you still have uh, Kyle Walker, you still have Kieran Trippier, you have Kyle Walker-Peters, 
Jaden Bogle, Matty Cash. I mean, the list goes on. There's there's a really, really special crop of fullbacks now um, at the disposal of, of Garrett Southgate and then whoever it is that, you know, eventually replaces him. The young guys, they're modern footballers. They're suited to how the game has moved. You can tell that many of them were wingers or central midfielders that moved back rather than centre-backs who moved out. Of of the ones I listed, I mean, only Juan Basaki is someone you'd call defensive-minded. The rest are all attacking players. It's a really, 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 really bright group for England. Really bright group. But those two are going to be linked forever. James gets the headlines because of an absolute world-class uh, goal, a, a thunderbolt from 30 yards, just arrows its way into the top corner. But Lamptey had the better game. There can be no denying Tariq Lamptey had the better game of the two. Um, Brighton then miss an absolute setter. Lewis Dunk has to score. He has to score from there. It's it's just unacceptable that he doesn't at least at least work the goalkeeper. But you have to score. You're unmarked. There's nobody close to you. It's perfect ball. You're about seven yards out. Just head it back across the goal. Don't try and flick it into the corner. Um, it should be 2-all at that point. But then Chelsea go 3-1 up with a, a fluke. Kurt Zuma scuffs a shot. It hits a defender, takes a deflection and rolls into the net. Um, it's I, I think it's an undeserved three points for Chelsea, but I'm sure it's three points they'll take. I'm sure they'll be very happy with their three points and they won't care at all how it came about. It'll be interesting to see how Frank uh, manipulates the shape of the team over the next few weeks, how he integrates the other new signings that they've made. It does look like Eduard Mendy is almost done. Um, he's a different type of goalkeeper to Kepa. I have doubts over him, but he's certainly more aggressive than Kepa. He's certainly better on crosses. He's... A better shot stopper, but I do think there's a flaw in his shot stopping and that he palms the ball back into central areas quite a lot. Um, he's not a, a, a cross claimer. He'll come and flick the ball away, tap it away. He doesn't really get any distance on his punches or anything. It's more just to clear the ball from the danger area. I have major questions over him with his feet, and I think when he plays, when he's asked to play as a sweeper-keeper... And come out off his line. I think he makes very, very rash decisions. So, for Chelsea, there's an awful lot of work to do for Frank. There really is. He has to figure out what his best 11 is going to be. Then he has to figure out what shape they're going to play in. If those two things don't link up, if the shape he wants and the nominal best 11 don't link up, then he has to rethink. He can't just try and force square pegs into round holes. His job is literally on the line this year. Anything less than top four is going to be considered an unmitigated disaster. With the spend, there's still talk of Declan Rice. There's a, a really good article, actually, in The Athletic this morning from Daniel Taylor, probably the best sports writer in the country, um, about Declan Rice and, and more about West Ham and the unhappiness around West Ham. But it does ask the question, could anyone really blame Declan Rice if he pushed to go? And the answer is no, you couldn't, because West Ham from top to bottom is just 
is a toxic situation at the moment. The ownership is, I mean, they're not ideal. They're not ideal. Um, they were never ideal. I don't know that West Ham fans were overly enthused when they bought the club. They're certainly not enthused now. Um, there's also, you know, I mean, I don't massively go into the financial side of things on this, but I, I saw a tread last night from the Swiss Ramble, who's, uh, you know, as good as anybody at breaking down the finances in football. And he went through each club and he was just kind of, you know, the, talking about the funding that owners were putting into clubs. West Ham have paid 17 million in interest to Sullivan and Gold, which is by far the highest paid by a club to Premier League clubs over the last five years. They also did a um, a 30 million fundraising kick from the shareholders in July basically to cover the loss of COVID, not for anything to help the club uh, improve, just to cover the loss of some COVID. But for them to have paid 17 million out to Golden five years, in just interest, just interest, um, it's, it's not good. I mean, Golden Sullivan, what they have done is they have taken loans and then loaned that money into the club. And it's put quite a heavy leverage on the club. The most remarkable thing in this thread, and this is slightly off topic, so I apologize. Manchester United have paid 209 million in the last five years to fund the Glazers' ownership structure. 209 million. In the last 10 years, they've spent 838 million on financing. 251 million of that is debt repayment. 99 million on dividends, which is, you know, money basically going to the Glazers. And 488 million to service the debt on the club, which was leveraged by the Glazers. They took out a 140 million pound loan just this summer. Now, it was presented that this loan was for transfers, but I have doubts. I have real doubts. Uh, for contrast to their Manchester neighbours, Manchester City's owners have provided $142 million in share capital in the last five years as the club has moved to operating uh, in a profitable manner. However, in the previous six years, they put in $1.145 billion. So they have provided a total of $1.3 billion since acquiring the club. So, City's owners have put 1.3 billion into the club in 11 years. In 10 years, and the Glazers have been there a lot longer than that, but this is just the last 10 years, the Glazers have basically taken 838 million out of the club to service their own debts. That is remarkable. And it shows why United maybe are struggling with this Jaden Sancho thing. Now, I've said I don't think the Sancho deal is happening. I don't think it was ever happening. 
I don't think they ever even got in a room with Dortmund. Sancho played last night, scored, looked very happy. Played really well. Now, United's other alleged main target before the summer was Jack Grealish. And producer Guy has just informed me that Grealish has now signed a new five-year contract at Aston Villa. And that's massive for Villa. It's a huge sign of intent for Villa to be able to keep Jack Grealish at the club. He's their captain. He's their talisman. Along with Douglas Louise, he's the most important player. And they're make, making moves this summer. I mean, they've already brought in Matty Cash. They've already brought in Ollie Watkins. They have a deal in place now to sign Emmy Martinez from Arsenal for, uh, I think it's $18 million. They have had a bid apparently accepted for Bert, Bertrand Traore from Lyon. They're still in for Milot Rashika. Now, I don't know if it's Rashika or... Traore, I'm not sure. They play different sides. I mean, Traore predominantly would play from the right-hand side. Rashika predominantly from the left-hand side. So, if they want both of them, is it both of them to go up front with Ollie Watkins? Which would then mean Grealish in a three. Now, that's that's going to cause some issues just from you know, a work rate point of view. Not that Grealish doesn't work very hard, he does, but he's not the most defensively diligent. Um, but their Villa are being very, very ambitious this summer. It's it's great to see they've come up into the Premier League and they have no thoughts that they're uh, inferior to everybody else. They've also offered a um, a new contract to Keenan Davis. So. Villa are showing what a club can do with really good ownership. United are showing how bad ownership hamstrings the club in the same way that West Ham that West Ham do. Um, from that Swiss Ramble tw- uh, thread, Villa have benefited from 193 million of share capital from their owners in the last five years including $106 million from NSWE, which is one of the two companies that owns them. This is nothing new for Villa, who have required $333 million of funding from various owners in the last decade. So Villa have ran at a loss. Basically, the owners have been keeping them afloat. But they do have mega-rich owners now, and they have two really aggressive owners. So... You can see what the plan is here. Dean Smith's another manager who's going to find himself under a bit of pressure this year because there's going to be an expectation that they take a significant step forward. 16th probably won't be good enough for him. I think he's probably going to have to aim for like 11th or 12th. Um, I'm not saying he'll get sacked if he doesn't get that, but I do think there'll be questions asked if he doesn't. Um We'll wrap up with a bit of transfer news. Uh, um, there's quite a bit going on at the moment, obviously. Um, so Liverpool will apparently wait till the final week of the transfer window to make an official move for Thiago Alcantara. Yeah, sure. Manchester United fear increased competition for England winger Jadon Sancho next summer if they cannot prize him away from Dortmund in this transfer window. They can't prize him away. There's going to be an awful lot more competition next year. And in all likelihood, they're never going to get the player. Um, 
Manchester City have offered 82 million plus 4.5 million in add-ons for Atletico Madrid's Uruguayan defender Jose Jimenez. That is from AS in Spain. He would make an awful lot more sense than Koulibaly. From an age point of view, he's 25, so around the same age as Laporte. He's an aggressive front foot defender, which is a nice contrast with Laporte. He is a great defender. He's naturally right-sided as well, so he, he will fit perfectly in with what um, what City want to do. You're not having to, to you know, move Koulibaly across and teach him a new position. Now, that's a, it's a hefty price. The only doubt on him is injuries. If he was, if he was less injury prone, he without question be one of the five best centre backs in the world. He is a brilliant defender, a pure old school defender, incredibly brave, great one v one, good pace, super aggressive, dominant in the air. He's learned under Simeone. He learned next to Diego Godin for five years, and. During that time, Godin was the best defender on the planet. So um, I, I think that would be a, a good signing for City. Now, it is a pricey deal, but it's City. They, they have the money. I would rather sign him than Koulibaly if I was Manchester City. Um, Turkish side Fenerbahce are in talks with Liverpool over signing Divock Origi, with Aston Villa, Newcastle, Brighton, and Fulham also interested in the 25-year-old. We can rule out Villa because they signed Ollie Watkins. We can rule out Newcastle because they signed Callum Wilson. Brighton and Fulham, you could see them being interested. Divock might be a good fit next to Mitrovic. He's not the ideal fit, I don't think, at Brighton. He's not going to be a big-time goal scorer. The other reports around Fenerbahce's interest is that they will, they want a loan with an option to buy. I don't think Liverpool will take that. I think you would have to pay Liverpool a substantial fee for a loan and an obligation to buy. I don't think they'll take an option to buy on Origi. Especially as one of the reasons they want to sell Origi is to buy a replacement. They'll need money. Arsenal could allow Lucas Torreira to leave on loan before the end of the transfer window with Fiorentina and Torino both interested in signing the Uruguayan. I don't understand why Arsenal would consider allowing him to leave on loan. If they want rid of him, surely it's to raise money to buy Tomas or to buy Aor. Sending him on loan doesn't help with that. Uh, now maybe it would help rebuild his value, but you could do that by, I don't know, playing him. You put him in the team and you could play him and it, you know that would help. Uh, if Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain do not, do not complete a deal for Senegal defender Kaladou Koulibaly by the weekend, Napoli are expected to take him off the market. I will say, I don't think he was ever all that close to signing for anybody. I think uh, a spoofer with a catchphrase who likes to exaggerate things made up a lot of stuff. Um, I don't think he's the right signing for either of those clubs because he's a left-side centre-back, and they both have really good left-side centre-backs in America Laporte and Presno Kimbembe. So I don't think he makes sense for either club. Um, I hope he stays at Napoli. I like what they're doing there. I like that they've uh, made a couple of good moves this summer, and they're not under any pressure to sell him. 
you know, regardless of the Osimian deal, they had a lot of money due to them this year because of a lot of loans they sent out last year with obligations to buy. So they don't need the money. Udinese and Argentina midfield, midfielder Rodrigo de Paul has said a move to Leeds is close before deleting the update from Twitter. He'd be a great signing for Leeds. There's no doubt at all he'd be a great signing for Leeds. Um, it's really ambitious to see them going after him. He he could play for you know a lot more established Premier League clubs um, than Leeds. So for them to go and, and be the ones to target him, it, it's a really good move. He'll add a lot to their midfield. Creativity, goals. He's a hard worker as well. He'll fit in with what they want to do. So I'd be all in favour of that deal. Manchester United are in talks with Real Madrid for the 23-year-old Spain international Sergio Regulon. That's from Marca. Um, I would be surprised if United signed him because Real want a buyback clause, and I just don't think United will do that. I think there's other targets. If they do want a left-back, they could go and buy Alex Tellez, um, who they can get for probably less money without the buyback clause. And it's probably slightly better right now, which is what they want. They want someone for now. Uh, Sevilla have signed, you know, Argentina's left back, um, Marcus Acuna. That's fine. West Ham, this is a good one. This is a good one. I mean, this shows everything about West Ham. West Ham are considering another bid for England international, James Tarkowski, after Burnley rejected the last offer, which amounted to 30 million, including add-ons. So let's recap. Hello, is that Burnley? Yes, it is. I'm calling from West Ham. We'd like to sign James Tarkovsky. That's fine. Our price is 40 million. We'll give you 20 million. No, the price is 40 million. We'll give you 27 million. No, the price is 40 million. We'll give you 27 million and 3 million in add-ons to take it to 30 million. No, the price is 40 million. Hangs up the phone. Hello, is that the London Evening Standard? We'd just like you to know that we're considering another bid. Can you get that out to all your readers who are our fan base? This is not a serious club. This is not a club who has any thoughts of really signing James Tarkovsky. This is a club who have no idea what they're doing. Tarkovsky's really good. Like, he's really good. He would massively improve them. The issue is, he plays the right side of the, of the centre-back pairing, which is where Issa Diop can, you know, normally plays. Now, maybe Diop just sh- shifts across. He has played quite a lot there in the past. Um, and we'll see how that pairing works. But I, I just don't think they're going to sign him. I have a feeling that if they ring Burnley and say, right, here's 40 million Burnley, just turn around and say, no, it's actually 50. We had a little rethink. It's 50. We're getting very close to the point where, like, if West Ham don't do something, they're going to be dead before they get started. Like, their next six games are horrendous. They lost their first game. The next six games are all against teams that finished, I think, in the top eight last season. It's very hard to see them picking up any points before they play Burnley um, in November. We're in mid-September, and it's almost two months 
two full months. We're a, it's a week shy of two months till that Fulham game. And I don't see them picking up any points in that time. If they don't get something done soon, they are in major, major trouble. Spurs have offered Napoli's Poland striker Arcadius Milik 90000 a week and a $5 million signing on fee. Uh, that's fine. What about offering Napoli some money for their player? Spurs are also lining up a bid for Eintracht Frankfurt and Dutch striker Bas Deust. Following Mourinho's complaints about the laziness of his squad. Um, I, I meant to address this yesterday. I don't think Mourinho should really have made those comments. I thought the team struggled because of him, if I'm honest. I thought the team struggled because of Jose. Uh, Deust was uh, tremendous at sporting. Uh, Lisbon had been decent at Wolfsburg, but inconsistent. Um, his two moves to Germany haven't really worked all that well. He had one good season with Wolfsburg in, in 14-15, where he scored 20 goals in 36 games. Uh, aside from that, his highest was 12. Um, but in Portugal, he was lights out. In the Netherlands, he was he was really, really good as well. His last season there, 32 in, in 34 in the league, 38 and 39 in all competitions. He is a goal scorer. He is a good target man. He's got good link-up play, good hold-up play, clever movement. Um, I think he could be the type of backup that is a good fit there behind Harry Kane. Don't think he'll expect to play every game. He'll be a pain in the arse for Premier League teams to play against. Um, Bastus is actually one of the few that have been linked to Spurs that make sense. Um, Chelsea's midfielder Conor Gallagher will join West Brom on loan for the rest of the season and is set to sign a new deal at Stamford Bridge. It's a deal that makes sense for everybody. He needs games. Chelsea want him out getting games and, and developing. And West Brom badly need help. Like, badly, badly need help. USA goalkeeper Zach Steffen set to make his debut for Manchester City in the Carabao Cup next week. Good for him. Good for them. He needs minutes. Certainly needs minutes. Um, that's pretty much it for today, then. Not a whole lot else going on. Um, first round of games over. Uh, tomorrow, Lee Scott will join me. Uh, Lee's going to join me every Wednesday for the duration of the season, or as long as he, as he can, as long as time allows. And um, we'll be discussing any interesting tactical shifts that he saw over the weekend. And um, it should be fun. It should be a good show. That's the, the hope is to have Lee on every Wednesday moving forward. Um, hopefully Dan Rhodes will join me this Friday for the preview show. Um, assuming that goes ahead, then those two you can lock in every Monday and Friday. And then you only have to put up with me on my own for three days. So that's that's a big step forward. You know, that's progress. This is me wheeling and dealing in the transfer market. This is me doing what, what West Ham have failed to do, what Burnley have failed to do. I mean, I'm already ahead of the curve. Um, I hope you're enjoying the show. Really do. Thank you so much for the support so far. Um, everything is quite promising as things stand. So we will continue to uh, to move forward. Thanks, as always, to Guy Drinkle for um, his patience and his production skills. Thank you to you for listening. 
I will see you tomorrow. I'm here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Podcast Network.